I'll invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, and I'll read from verse 7 through verse 13. This is our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some of yours might also add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning with this great burden of prayer, this great need to learn to pray. Lord, we praise you for your teaching us. We praise you for your expounding on us and, and modeling for us, instructing us how we ought to, to pray. And so I ask you for grace now and ask you for the blessing, Lord, of being able to dig deep into what you mean and what you have taught us and what we might learn this morning in your exposition of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift, and I pray that at the end, Lord, of this morning, that we'd be all the more thankful, and Lord, all the more eager to be before this throne of grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's important for us this morning to know that there is a great danger uh, surrounding this precious gift, this precious topic of prayer. Some of that danger has arisen from the vague teachings in many churches regarding what prayer is. Those familiar with the scriptures know that the major means in which Satan has chosen to work in entangling humanity is by taking truth and turning it into half-truth. Though he schemes often in outright horrid wickedness, he works best in craftiness and subtlety. His greatest ploy has not been turning the world into outright Satan worshippers, but rather having men and women bow down to something that looks or something that seems like the authentic, something that seems like the original. Thus Christ told us in Matthew 24 that the Antichrist will seem like the Christ. We understand that the danger of Catholicism is that it looks like the church, that the gospel they preach, it looks like the gospel. If you read the Book of Mormon, there's a, there are times when you read it and it sounds like it's the scriptures. It seems like it's the scriptures. The Jehovah's Witnesses at times seem like genuine believers. The effectiveness of such scheming is evident in that far more turn to these types of false religions than those who are outright occult worshippers. But such craftiness has slithered itself into many hearts, into the very heart of our topic today. Prayer is a common event in our society. As much as it has been attacked, as much as it has been removed from our schools, and as much as it is uh, faux pas, you know, to be praying in public, etc., etc., at the same time, people pray. Even right now in the 2008 presidential elections, these men and women, they're striving hard to be seen at church. They strive hard for people to see them praying, for people to see them doing something religious. Even those people who have removed prayer from school would even tell you that they personally still pray. 
The majority of men and women on this earth practice some form or another of prayer. Practically every religion has prayer as one of its top spiritual disciplines. Muslims pray. Buddhists pray. Mormons pray. Sikhs pray. Jehovah's Witnesses pray. Catholics pray. Uh, Devotees of Hare Krishna pray. Even the man or woman who has hardly a, a religious bone in his body will bow his head with his family at Thanksgiving and pray. Prayer is seemingly ingrained into the fabric of humanity. Everyone meditates and prays to their divine being. The knowledge that we can talk to a higher power may be denied by a few secularists in the media, but a simple look at the peoples of the world will tell you that we live in a world where people pray. And this is where the danger lies. I believe that because of this sociology of prayer, because of a praying world, that a misunderstanding and a lack of knowledge of what prayer means particularly for the Christian has seeped into the church. For many, prayers become so generalized that I fear that we have begun to think that prayer is fluff or that all prayer is effective or that there is no doctrine of prayer that is really pertinent for the church. In other doctrines, we stand upright and distinct from the world. The cross is dogmatic and bold. The cross richly stands out in sharp contrast to almost all other religions. But prayer has lost its uniqueness in the Christian faith. Prayer has become convoluted and watered down, and among many believers, it's lost its taste. It's lost its uniqueness. And for good reason. In many ways, it's easy to understand why churches... why prayers become watered down in the church. Week after week, I get invitations from these different campus clubs at UCI. Week after week, I get these invitations for these interfaith prayer vigils, inviting CBF to, to come and join the Muslims, to come and join the Catholics, and to come join other Christian organizations. And all these campus clubs, they gather together in the name of peace, in the name of justice, And in lack of personal names to God, they just pray to these gods and generalities. And this stuff seeps, it's seeping into these Christian clubs and it's seeping in its way into Christian churches where there's no personal right doctrine and prayer, but only vague generalities of watered down weakness. Satan's craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. He has once again done well, not in causing the church to deny prayer altogether, but by the guile of taking away the potency and the power of Christian prayer. We can pray all we want, but if we lose the true focus and the true potency of prayer, we ought not pray at all. But we understand that such a response is unthinkable for the believer. To leave off prayer is untenable. There is great need for every individual in this room this morning, from the highest of the leaders to the, to the lowest, for all of us to once again be brought back to the Christian purpose and reasoning, the Christian power of prayer. And that's what our Lord does with us this morning. And it's precisely in our need for prayer that we turn to our Lord's instructions on how to pray. Before we dive into our text, I want to note a few things. First off is that many of us, myself included, have, have often called this the Lord's Prayer. Right? I might even on accident do that today but the reality is that this is not the lord's prayer but in a gift this is the disciples prayer 
God is telling the disciples particularly, and then you and I, these many years later, how to pray. And he gives this to you and I as a gift. So this is our prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is for those who follow Christ. And we'll see this morning that this prayer is distinctly different and unique from any other kind of prayer that the world offers up to God or a God. Secondly, though I've chosen to expound on on Matthew's gospel, on Matthew's uh, teaching of this, Luke also provides us with an example of Christ's teaching on prayer in Luke 11. It's a different instruction, it's a different time, a different context, but he teaches the same prayer. And let me just read Luke 11, verse 1, how this one happens. It reads, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. So this morning... This is how we must approach this text. This is how we must approach this morning's sermon. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. The disciples were not asking Jesus this question as if they had never prayed before. The disciples were no doubt, they were young, they were good young Jews. They had grown up praying. They had grown up studying the scriptures. They had grown up in the synagogue. They had grown up praying. And we can no doubt even assume that even as some of them were fishermen, that they had, they had gone out into the oceans many a times and these storms come raging in. And for fear of life, they cried out in prayer to God at least once or twice in their life. So these men weren't asking to learn how to pray as if they'd never prayed before. But what has happened here is that these men, having been hours and hours with Christ, having listened to Christ pray, they began to realize that the way Christ prays and the relationship that Christ has with God is incredibly different than the way they pray and incredibly different from the relationship that they had with God. And in watching Christ pray and being in the school of prayer with Christ, they then said, Christ, teach us to pray. What great liberty, what freedom and passion and power you have to pray. Why? How can you pray such a way? Teach us to pray the way that you pray. And so... We must ourselves ask Christ, Lord, teach us to pray. Whether you have been a believer for one month, whether you've walked with the Lord for 40 years, there is something to learn this morning about prayer. May our first petition this morning be, Lord, teach me to pray. And when you have prayed that, you can turn to your Bible and read the first answer to that prayer. It's found in verse 7 in this simple phrase, when You are praying. When you are praying. Now this phrase alone might be enough to convict many. When you are praying. The mere truth that Christians should be praying may bring many to fill the guilt of neglect even before the sermon has begun. Our Lord assumes that we will pray. And not just a prayer or two, but that we will be men and women of prayer. Knowing that uh, many of us might be brought into a state of conviction even by the mere mention that we should be praying, I head straight for grace this morning. I'll not stand up here with reason after reason why so many of us fail and are lazy in prayer. Rather, my goal is to show you the sweetness of prayer, the mighty blessings of prayer. My goal, and I believe Christ's goal as well, is not to beat us over the head. 
is not to provoke us with uh, imperative after imperative and command after command. My goal is not to go through the scriptures this morning and, and look at imperative and command after being devoted to prayer and pray in the Holy Spirit and keep yourself in prayer and not to beat you over the heads, but rather to show you by the grace of God the great sweetness of prayer. That see the uniqueness of the Christian's Ability to pray to God and seeing the profundity of our ability to come before a holy God, that your soul would yearn, that your soul would long to come to the throne of grace, that your heart would be drawn in to prayer, not out of duty, but as always, as God woos us to himself out of delight. And so let that first phrase, when you are praying, begin to unfold to you that for you and I, even to approach God in prayer is a gift of God's grace. But moving on more specifically now, look at our next phrase. Christ says, when you pray, do not pray as the Gentiles. The way Christ uses this word Gentile is a truly serious manner. Our Lord, he minces no words about the Gentiles. Here he, he holds up all the pagans, all the heathens. If he was preaching this sermon this morning, he would hold up all of the other religions that I've already mentioned. He would hold up all other religions that seem like a Christian religion. He would hold up all other men and women who seem that they're praying to God. But then he would say, but do not pray like them. Do not pray like them. Here Christ explains that Christians ought to pray with distinct difference from any other religion. Notice, first of all, the way that unbelievers pray. Christ says that unbelievers pray with meaningless repetition. The ESV says that they heap up empty phrases. Christ points out for us that it is important for us to take note of our very words in prayer. Take note of the very phrases that proceed from our lips. In other words, we need to think when we're praying. We need to have not just our hearts, but our minds engaged when we talk to God. When we converse with people, we have to work to make ourselves clear. We don't talk gibberish. We speak clearly and lucidly. We, we have to engage our minds. This is, of course, a call of encouragement that our hearts and minds must be engaged in prayer. But meaningless repetition also means that we don't say the Lord's name a thousand times when we're praying. So this is, I'm not preaching this as a pet peeve, but there might be some uh, practicality for us here. We need to make sure that when we're praying, step away for a minute, that when we're praying, Every like third word isn't Lord or God. Right? So we do this. Um, probably guilty too. Some of us pray like, you know, Lord God, thank you for this day, God, Lord, Father. And you know, I'm not trying to be silly, but we pray that way. And every other word is the name of God. I'm not saying that's sin. I'm not saying that's wrong. But you'll notice the very uniqueness here, even in Christ's prayer. He mentions the proper name. He uses Father one time. And then the rest of the prayer is simple conversation with God. And, and what, even what we see this morning is prayer in its, in its simplicity is talking with God. We talk with the Father. In fact, 
what is so profound about this is that God, yes, we worship him. Yes, we bow down to him. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he is the exalted one. And yet he invites us, as we'll look at later, mostly next week, to come to him as father. When I talk with my dad, I don't say dad every other third word. Even when I'm asking him for something, I address him. I respect him. Then I talk to him like a normal person. Christ teaches us likewise. There's freedom to talk to God as he is a person. So, just in practicality sense, you can evaluate and make changes, make your own changes. But those are that's more minutia. What's more important, though, is what Christ unfolds to us. Is that there's a reason unbelievers pray the way they do. There is a reason that unbelievers heap up phrase upon phrase. There is a reason why they repeat themselves over and over and over. There is a reason why there is this charismatic form of prayer where you speak absolute nonsense and you do it over and over and over and over. There are reasons for this, and Christ tells us right here. Do not pray as the Gentiles do, heaping up words. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. This is incredibly important. All religions believe they will be heard because their words are many. In prayer, their focus is on the amount of words. It is their amount of words heaped up. It is the amount of hours spent in rote prayer. It is religious zeal and fervor manifest in how long they pray and how often they pray. And the point Christ is making is that it is this disciplined life in prayer for them, that causes their God to say, you have worked hard enough now. Their thinking is, if they pray enough, and they repeat themselves enough, and if they plead, and if they're earnest enough, if they're on their knees long enough, if they chant through this Salat many times, that God will then be inclined to hear them. That God will turn His ear to their prayer. What this simply means is this. They pray thinking that prayer depends upon them. Gentiles, and even some of us, meaning unbelievers, unbelievers and even some of us as believers, we pray thinking that prayer depends upon us. We learn from teaching here that prayer, the potency of prayer, is dependent not upon us, but upon God. What Christ is confronting here is a man-centered belief in the potency of prayer. For unbelievers, the power of prayer is man. But Christ declares that the power of prayer is God. It's because the potency of prayer for unbelievers depends upon them that all sorts of introspective questions have to arise. They have to ask themselves, have I prayed long enough? Have I been on my knees long enough? Have I, have I prayed? Have I touched every bead? Have I said the right words? And they have to ask these questions, why? Because if they haven't, then the prayer is not effective. If they haven't followed the rigmarole of this gentilic form of prayer, then they know that they're not going to woo the ear of God and that their prayers will fall dead on the floor. But Christ teaches us that if the power of prayer depends upon you, you can be assured that there is no power in prayer. God's ear is not turned towards you because of you or because of anything you have done. 
We get ahead of ourselves here, but Christ tells us to call God our Father, implying adoption. We pray because of what God has done for Himself. We pray because God has, has beckoned us to pray. God delights in when we come to Him. He delights in when we pour out our hearts before Him. He's always listening. He's always ready. He always has His, his ear inclined towards us. Meaning that nothing you and I can do or will ever do will direct the eye or ear of God towards us. So pagan prayer is completely different than Christian prayer. I'll come back to this um, later on. Something else, in light of this though, something might also be said here about the length of the disciples' prayer. Note very simply just the brevity of this prayer. The shortness of this prayer. Now, this does not mean that Christ is teaching us how long we are to pray. We have examples of Christ where even in Luke 6, he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Christ spent hours and hours yearning and pleading with his Father in prayer. And we have, we have many other examples in the Old Testament. We have Moses who went to the mountain and spent time in prayer for 40 days and 40 nights. We have extended prayers of, of Jeremiah. We have prayers of Daniel that last many chapters where these men were pleading for, and, and even that section of Scripture only being a portion of what he actually prayed. So we know that men in their pursuit of God and their fellowship with God, they prayed for, for many, many hours and many, many days. The focus here, though, is not so much on the length of prayer, but the simplicity of prayer. Some men pray before meals and give a quick prayer. Some pray quickly after their time in the Word. Others will pray 30 or 60 minutes. Some set themselves up to the standard of praying five times a day. But the standard of our prayers is not their length. Now, I want to regress for a minute. I told you that the potency of our prayers is not in us. It's, in, it's completely in God. But that, at the same time, doesn't mean that we have no part in it. We do have a part in prayer. And I would say this. How we evaluate our prayers, it's not in their length, but it's in their fervency. It's not in how long we pray, but it's in the weight in which we pray. Is there any weight in your prayer? Is there any weight when you pray? Some can pray more weight in 10 minutes than others might pray in two hours. But what we see here is that our praying must be earnest. So let me illustrate this way. How do you evaluate a sermon? How do you, at the end of this morning, how will you evaluate this sermon? Will you evaluate whether this sermon was good or not? Whether I went till 10.30 Will you evaluate if I preached for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50, 60 minutes? No. You'll evaluate the sermon. You evaluate the, the weight of the preaching of God's word according to its fervency, according to its capacity to move you in your inner man. There are some sermons that move you more in 10 minutes than others do in 90 minutes because it's the weight. If I preached for two hours and you were falling asleep and I said, if I only had 30 more minutes, I could wake you up. You would say, that's not the issue, Marcus. You, you put us to sleep at 10 minutes, right? Your sermon was so boring, we couldn't stay awake. The measurement of the effectiveness of a sermon is, is on its potency, on its weightiness, on its effectiveness to move the hearts of men. Well, this is likewise for us in prayer. 
Our prayers effectiveness does not depend upon us, but at the same time, for us, is there weightiness in our prayers? There is a casual relationship with God, but we go to Him and we talk with Him and we pour out in weight and in earnestness our prayer to God. Do we pray in earnestness? It is not the length, but it is the depth. It is the weight of prayer. And so I encourage you this way, to pour out your hearts and make it your goal, not the length of time, but in the earnestness of your prayer. If you can pray earnestly and pour your soul out in five minutes, pray five minutes. If it's 10, 15, if it's an hour and 20, but pour out your souls to the Lord. Stir your souls up. We fall asleep often and doze off because nothing much seems to happen in prayer. We, we wait for a vision, or like Daniel, we wait for the angel of the Lord to, uh, to appear to us in our prayers. And we often, we don't, we don't say this, this is not in our doctrine, but we go to prayer and we often find it boring. We find it empty. And it's almost as if we are expecting God to do something for us in prayer. But let me step back and say this. Prayer is not, first and foremost, about us being entertained. It's about us entertaining God. Psalm 22.3 says this. It says, God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Prayer is not about our entertainment. It is about us entertaining the Lord. It is about us exalting and praising Him. It is about our God being enthroned on our prayers. It's our duty to lift Him up. It's our duty and our privilege to exalt Him and magnify Him and, if you will, to entertain our God with our prayers. So ask yourself, do you truly express weightiness and do you truly express your needs while in prayer have you truly pleaded with god or have you spoken to him and bore distraction or is god entertained by your earnestness this is a hypothetical question meaning it's not legitimate it's not a legitimate question but if if the answer to your needs were solely based upon the earnestness of your prayer would your prayers be answered would they be answered we could step back and we could learn something from the Gentiles. We could learn something from the pagans. Pagans think that the potency of prayer is in them. And they pray that way. Some unbelievers pray with more fervency than I do. We ought to pray knowing that our prayer's effectiveness is because it will be answered by God. And because we can come before Him. It's well known that in the emergency room, right, squeaky wheel gets the oil. You walk into the emergency room with a broken finger, you're going to sit there for hours. You walk into the emergency room, right? Mike Estera was just telling me this. You walk into the emergency room and the effective way to get help is to say, chest pains, right? Start screaming chest pains and it, you know, you're whipped back into the emergency room, right? Why? Because chest pains, it's emergency. Because it's, it's uh, pertinent to help someone who's probably going to die. But likewise, all of us are weak and pathetic creatures. We live each day tarnished by our own sins, as well as being battered and bruised by the temptations and snares of the world. We look fine physically, but if we could see each other spiritually, we would see torn limbs, blackened and battered souls. How profound it would be if we could see each other as we really are. How, how profound it would be to have spiritual eyes to see the, the spiritual state of each other. And then to watch as one of our brothers or sisters in that state, torn and wounded and dirty, kneeled down and said, God, thanks for today. Thanks for the gospel. Help me to be a good believer. 
Amen. What's the point? We pray without earnestness because we don't see our great need. We don't pray with earnestness because we don't believe that prayer is earnest. We don't pray with zeal and weightiness because we, ha- we think that prayer is fluff. and We think that prayer is not as profound as it is. We need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to see I ought to pray with earnestness. Christ had more weight in his prayer over the fishes and loaves than most of us have in a month's worth of prayer. But it was not because he was Christ. It was because he knew his need. It was because in his humanity he understood his great need to come before the Father and seek the benefits of what the Father extends in his hands. Christ gives us our final reason why we don't need to chant and repeat ourselves for hours and hours and ultimately why the weight of prayer is not dependent upon you or I because of this. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Gentiles babble in order to capture the ear of God. They hope that they will be heard because of their antics of their incessant pleas, and that through this, the ear of God will finally be won, and they will be able to express their need to Him. Christ tells us we pray not in this way. We do not plead with Him to listen to us, that we might tell Him what our needs are, because He already knows. So don't miss this point. Since God already knows, this implies that He has been waiting for you to come to Him. He's been waiting for you to come to Him. The pagan rants and raves and repeats his prayers, waiting to get God's intentions. But for the Christian, it is not us who are waiting for God. It is God who has been waiting for us. His ear is ready. In His omniscience and omnipresence, we have His full attention. And most profound of all, Christ tells us that God already knows what we need. So here's the question. If God already knows, why pray? If God already knows what you need, why, why pray? Here's my answer. Our greatest need in prayer is not the answer to our petition. Our greatest need in prayer is God himself. Our God knows that our greatest need is him. We need to learn that prayer is not simply a means to an end but that prayer is an end in itself. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is fellowship with God. Prayer is being alone before the God of the universe, talking with Him, sharing your heart with Him. There's something radical to think that any given moment, millions of believers might be in prayer to God. But the omnipresence of God means that for each individual believer, the fullness of God is before Him. The fullness of his ear is attentive to our measly prayers. No word, no groan, no tear falls to the ground unheard or unseen. He knows all even before we have come to him. He has been waiting. He has been waiting for us to pour out our hearts before him. All this points to a personal relationship with God. Now we've heard this phrase. Most of us have even, the gospel is preached to us with those words, do you have a personal relationship with God? And for many reasons, evangelicals, I would say, 
the kind of evangelicals in this room have, have begun to cater away from such kind of talk, from such kind of Christian lingo, this personal relationship with God idea. And perhaps there's good reasons for that. We understand that in our Christian culture, even among evangelicals, this Christian relationship, this intimacy with Christ, this devotional attitude has, has turned into these weak sauce worship songs, these Jesus my boyfriend relationships, Jesus the, my buddy, my friend, Jesus the man upstairs. And that kind of, that's what we conjure up when we hear this personal relationship with Christ, personal relationship with God. But lest you throw out the baby with the bathwater, we must be mindful that relationship and communion with God, this idea did not begin with evangelicals. It did not even begin with Puritans, but it began with Christ. Only as doctrine has become weak and watered down has the true reality of a sacred relationship between God and man been cheapened and been turned into a cheap date. All of this to say that prayer is an end in itself because prayer, especially private prayer, is communing with God. God has made it so that you and I are completely dependent upon Him. And our first need and our first priority is not simply the answers to other prayers outside, but prayers first and foremost in our own heart, in our own personal relationship with God. The Puritans often called it secret prayer. Not to mean that no one knows about it, but that it was private. It emphasized this personal relationship with God. It reminds me that there is someone that is closer to me than my wife. It reminds me that my wife has a relationship with someone who knows her more intimately than I do. That my wife needs somebody greater than she needs me. It reminds me that I have a relationship with someone else more intimate and more near than my own wife. That's God. We come to God. He knows our hearts He knows the depths of our own struggles. He knows our pains. He knows our weaknesses. And even in times when we struggle in explaining our hearts to our wives, or we struggle explaining our hearts to those who love us and know us, God already knows. He already knows our pains. He already knows our toils. Our aim is to go to the God who understands and cares about us. We're not mystical monks who seek day after day for some emotional movement or experience to define our nearness to God. We're not religious legalists who define our relationship to God based on how spiritual we've been. But we are children of God, children who have been drawn into a spiritual relationship with an invisible God. Based not upon us, but upon the cross. Based upon the gospel. No one knows us like God. But no one wants to be with us like God. And we ought to want to be with no one like we should want to be with the Lord. But this also gives us massive hope in the act of prayer itself. He already knows. He already knows what you need. It means you don't have to scream. It means you don't have to pray 40 times a day and fast for 40 days before He hears. Christ says not only is He already listening, but He already knows all that, that, that you need. And what is so encouraging here is that James doesn't, Jesus doesn't simply say, He already knows what you're going to ask. Something greater is implied than just Christ already knowing what we're going to ask. He already knows what we need. Now, you know, this is not a, this is not a magic trick. Right? So, Peter, let's, for example, I say, I bunch of people, hand out a bunch of papers to all of you. I say, write down a question. Write down a question and put it in the hat. 
or hold on to it. Just think of a question. And then I stand up here and I point to Peter and I say, Peter, you're going to ask da 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 da. And he's, of course, stupefied. And I go through all, each and every one of you, and I tell you exactly what you are thinking, and I tell you exactly what you're going to ask. And you would say, well, that's a magic, that's a neat magic trick. But in the end, that's all it would be. It would be a useless stunt. It would be of no profit of you if I simply knew what you were going to ask. God is not saying here that he simply knows what you're going to ask. He knows what you need. He knows what he has in store for you. He has the ability not just to simply know what you're going to ask, but he's saying here, I have the power, I have the potency to grant your requests, to give you what you need. I could say, Peter, on, you're going to ask if I could give you a Lamborghini. And he would say, that's a neat trick, you read my mind. But I have no power to give Peter on a Lamborghini. I have no power to give hardly any of you anything, except love, except for friendship. So you don't come to me with these kinds of needs, but we come to God. He already knows what you need. Not a neat magic trick, not mind reading, but he knows your intimate, personal, physical, and spiritual needs. So this, all the more, should fuel us to go to the Lord in prayer. To beckon us and to make our mouths water, not in duty, but in opportunity. To learn of prayer. This great privilege to fellowship with God and to pour out our hearts, knowing that his foreknowledge of our needs is already met. It should not lead us to say, if he already knows, what's the point of me asking? No, it should lead us to pray all the more. God already knows what we need, but the question is, do we know what we need? He chooses prayer as the means to show us what we really need. He chooses prayer to show us that our greatest need is not earthly petitions, but it's fellowship with him, fellowship with the Father, a relationship with God. We come to Him in humility, expressing our requests. And through that, He tells us what is best for us. He meets our needs. Failure to pray is, first of all, saying, I don't need God's help. And secondly, is saying, I don't need God to tell me what is best for me. I already know. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. Most of the time, I don't even know what I need. But Christ tells us, God, He knows. Saints, in this very room, this very moment, every This is how this becomes so eminently practical. Every single individual in this room has needs. Every single individual in this room has physical needs. And every single one of you has spiritual needs. Physical needs like health, like daily bread, maybe some money, maybe a car, maybe a place to live. Every one of you has spiritual needs. More righteousness, more godliness, more humility. More zeal to fight and put sin to death. God beckons us to come to Him and to plead with Him. And He promises He knows our needs. He will answer them. So the question is simply this. Do you ask? Do you plead? Do you come to your Father who already knows, wanting to be with Him first and seeking the answer to your prayer second? Our Lord has taught us this morning that the right way to pray is by unfolding to us the wrong way to pray. If you have learned what I have learned, you have been confronted with the knowledge that so often we think the power of prayer lies within us rather than within God. We spent this morning looking at all the failed attempts other people make in prayer. Now it's time for us to evaluate our own failed attempts in prayer. 
So I ask you now, in what ways, as you look at the wrong way to pray, in what ways have you succumbed to this? In what ways do you pray as an unbeliever? In what ways do you pray as a Gentile? Have you been making the potency of prayer dependent upon you? Have you bought into thinking that unless your prayers are long enough or deep enough or even weighty enough that God will not hear you? Cast off your wrong thinking and learn from Christ in His school of prayer. Have you been making prayer about God entertaining you rather than making prayer about you entertaining God? Then extol Him in your praises. Let, let us not have God simply enthroned upon the praises of Israel. But let, let us have God enthroned upon the praises of this church, of this congregation. Let us have God enthroned upon our own personal praises, our own personal prayers. Have you cheapened prayer into simply a means to an end rather than an end in itself? We learned this morning that prayer is an end in itself. Prayer is God's design for us to commune with Him. He provides this end for us both individually and corporately. So are you, are you using this end? Are you praying? Just, of course, evaluate your life of prayer. These kinds of sermons, these pinpoint sermons on such a singular topic are to, to realign us and to pull us back into where we ought to be and to encourage us to be praying all the more. And lastly, and most importantly of all, do you know that prayer is all of grace? Prayer has nothing to do with you getting saved. It has everything to do with the result of being saved. Do you marvel at the massive grace that is declared through being able to pray to God? George Whitfield is one of the most famous preachers ever have lived. This man of God preached the gospel of God's grace to thousands of men and women. There are accounts where up to 80,000 people would gather out in the fields to hear this individual preach the gospel, to preach the word of God. And, and his favorite aspect of preaching was justification by grace alone. This man loved to expound on the gospel. He loved to preach on the freedom that we have in Christ. He loved to preach on the freedom that Christ grants to us. He preached against false religion. He preached against legalism. And he ushered people to see that Christ had done it all. But what fueled Whitfield to preach this way is that he lived as a legalist for many years. He prayed like these Gentiles that Christ tells us not to pray like for many years. At 17 years of age, Whitfield was devout in religion. He would fast two days a week, totaling 36 hours. In the evening, he would devote himself to religious studies, to books, to praying, and even evangelizing. His moral impact had ripples among the sinners at his own school. He went to public worship two times every day and began doing his quiet times in Greek. Upon his arrival at Oxford at age 18, his zeal grew even greater. He would study in the cold for hours, doing damage to his body. He would pray and fast all the more. He joined the now famous Holy Club, famous because of Whitfield and, and men like John and Charles Wesley came from there. And they would practice early rising and lengthy devotions. There he strove for self-mastery, which left no amount of time wasted during the day. At nightfall, he wrote a lengthy diary, scrutinizing his actions and condemning his faults. He took the Eucharist every Sunday, fasted every Wednesday and Friday, and set apart Saturday as a day of preparation and reflection upon God. He visited the poor in prisons, and he visited the destitute and the poor children of sinners, of parents who were in prison. And all of this... He says in his diary, he believed, was ministering towards the salvation of his soul. 
And in all of this, Whitfield came later to recognize that he was completely devoid of the new birth. He was completely devoid of proper understanding of why he ought to seek after God. Completely devoid of understanding why he ought to be a man of prayer. In his diary, he wrote at one point, God only knows how many nights I have lain upon my bed groaning under the weight of sin I felt and bidding Satan depart from me in the name of Jesus. Whole days and weeks I have spent in lying prostrate on the ground begging and seeking for salvation. But he never found it. And all of this legalism and all of his religiosity, he never found it. In fact, it went on and he got worse. He started wearing torn and tattered clothing in the, in the snow. He would, he would walk in the cold and sleep and, and lay down in the snow for hours. During Lent one season, he ate nothing but little coarse bread and some tea every day. His body began shutting down. In fact, one of the other men who were part of this holy club, he had gone so far in his asceticism, he died. He destroyed his own body. Whitfield himself had to be put, uh, he had to stay in bed for months because he himself came to the point of almost dying of seeking the salvation of his soul. And yet what happened was, Whitfield heard the gospel. He realized that God would never hear him because of his earnestness. God would never hear him because of how much he pleaded. God would never hear him because he would, he would pray for hours and fast for days. He finally realized that God would hear him because of Christ. God would listen to his prayers solely because of what Jesus had done for, for Whitfield on the cross. Saints, it is the same for us this morning. The potency of our prayer depends not upon us. But our prayers are potent because of what Christ has done for us. So I urge you this morning, encourage you this morning, be mindful again of the cross. Be mindful again of why we call God Father. That is dependent not upon you. It is dependent not upon me. But now your prayers and your petitions are all effective because of the gospel. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy again. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to come to you, that you hear our prayers, that the potency and the efficiency of our prayers is not upon us, but it's because of the gospel, it's because of Christ. And so, Lord, all the more now, let us come. But Lord, if, if we were those who religiously sought through our own works to, to, to earn your ear, May we now apply that same zeal in grace. May we come to you in zeal knowing all the more you hear, knowing all the more you will answer, knowing all the more, Lord, that you know our needs even before we ask them, that you will grant to us our requests. Lord, thank you for this precious teaching. Lord, may we learn much. May we learn much even this morning. May we apply these things and may we grow with Christ in the school of prayer. Lord, we thank you again. In your name we pray. Amen.